That would be awesome. Awesome if you were in there. CNN has a picture of Capitol Police and Secret Service inside with their weapons drawn, with the door barricaded, with an armed standoff at the doors. That's pretty much what we predicted would happen. <laughs> it's called shitting the fan. Not confirmed, but there appears to be an order for all capitals nationwide to shelter in place. <laughs> no shit. Get ready. We're everywhere. Expect us. It might be wise at this point for all of those who are uh, fully prepared to join in to get yourselves together and get a QRF together a quick response force because our folks down there in the capital are going to need our assistance relatively quickly i can get a qrf together but i'm i'm 12 hours out there's no way i could be there and anywhere close to time this is going to be a standoff i don't think they're going to go in they can't they can't really do anything except secure the you know federal employees our public servants and uh, wait it out. What else are they going to do? They're going to fucking kill everybody? They're not going to kill anybody. So uh, it'll be negotiated. You know, let's see. The House will, you know, they'll negotiate. Let us finish our session. Okay, we'll let you finish your session and see what they do. And, you know, that's it. And then see what they do. What else are you going to do? I mean, they've already shot, had shots fired. They've already got a casualty. So um, they shot the old boy in the chest. I don't know if it's if it's uh, if he's dead yet or, or whatever the case is. But uh, they're, they're already taking action. I mean, at this point, there is no turning back. They just said that the DOD has not authorized the... Uh, National Guard to even be released uh, to go help. Break, break. Shots fired. Shots fired in the Capitol. Season 2, Episode 2, Oath Keepers. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. Uh, the recording at the intro was taken from the Stop the Steel J6 Zello channel, uh, a channel upon which Jessica Watkins, uh, a, an Oathkeeper, uh, alleged leader of the uh, Ohio Militia, uh, as they call themselves, they style themselves when really they're a paramilitary gang, uh, as she was storming the Capitol, uh, reporting live into the Zello channel, but I actually thought this clip was a little bit more interesting because it shows, you know, the intent and the planning, uh, the idea, the basic fundamental idea that uh, the attackers planned on occupying the Capitol, well documented in their own words, occupying the Capitol and essentially extorting the results that they wanted to get from Congress as they were certifying the electoral results. One of the goals I had at the outset of embarking on this podcast project was to do an episode on each of the major paramilitary gangs involved in the Capitol insurrection. 
And so I did episode 3 on the Proud Boys and episode 14 on the Three Percenters. Uh, even though, you know, the Proud Boys are more, they style themselves more after a street gang uh, than a true paramilitary style, uh, quote, militia gang. Even though I don't like to use the word militia in this context. I'd always intended to do an episode on the Oath Keepers, but the one thing that held me back was this. Questions regarding the legal status of one Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers. Now, even more than the Three Percenter movement with Mike Vanderbilt or the Proud Boys with Gavin McInnes, the Oath Keepers is very much a cult of personality centered on its founder, and so it seemed premature to address the subject until after charges were issued. This is going to be a two-part episode. I've reconciled myself to that fact. I Usually I try to keep about 14 days between uh, these episodes, and uh, then I start writing, and then things start happening, and I start writing more and more, taking ever more and more notes. Um, also, there have been a lot of developments in other parts of the January 6th insurrection, particularly to do with the January 6th House Select Committee. So uh, in this episode, uh, what I'll do is I'll get us caught up with the latest developments, especially from the January 6th Committee and some of the leading news stories there. And then I'll examine the early screeds, wherein Rhodes establishes the basic outline of what I would call a folk ideology that forms the core of the Oath Keeper movement. In the second episode in this uh, little mini-series here, I guess, uh, I'll go through the history of the Oath Keepers and the accelerating series of events wherein Rhodes leads his Oath Keepers into a series of confrontations with the federal government, uh, particularly the, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, BLM, um, culminating, of course, ultimately, in their participation in the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. 2021. Now, we always knew that, well, we've known for months anyway, that charges against Rhodes would eventually be forthcoming. Rhodes was listed as an unnamed, quote, person one in an indictment for conspiracy and other charges against the Oath Keepers received by the clerk of the courts on February 19th, 2021. So nearly a year now. And since that time, that, that case, or rather cases, against Oath Keepers have easily been by far the most complex of the January 6th cases. By August, for example, uh, one of the cases, Caldwell et al., uh, was on its fifth superseding indictment. So in this episode, uh, from about the middle onward, I'm going to go back to the beginning and look at the ideology of the Oath Keepers at its founding. Uh, drawing on Rhodes's blogging in the early days, uh, and uh, particularly an article that he had published in a uh, a gun porn magazine called SWAT, um, and it's going to be similar to what I did uh, for Mike Vanderbow in the Three Presenters episode. As a political scientist uh, who specializes in uh, political theory, the uh, study of political philosophy, um, that's where I think I can give the most value added here. So, uh, you know, I'll talk about what actually happened on January 6th and leading up to it. Um, but I'm going to spend most of the time on the Oath Keepers' folk ideology because I, I think it's important uh, to really try to uh, describe the ideas and, of course, to critique them and engage with them. 
So my premise is going to be a little bit different from what many people who study what they like to call the militia movement and what I like to call uh, paramilitary gangs. In the context of the Oath Keepers, uh, I think it's very much a creature and a creation of its time in the early 21st century. And that many of the things that it claims to be against, coups, racism, for example, um, these claims were done in bad faith uh, from the very beginning, uh, driven by a perception of the idea that what the far right needed was a kinder, gentler paramilitary movement, uh, getting away from things like the order, right, from the legacy of Timothy McVeigh and the Murrah bombing, the Murrah building bombing of in Oklahoma City in 1995. So that's the basic thesis of, of the episode. Um, much of what the Youth Keepers offer up as central to their movement was just constructed, uh, you know, as a kind of a, a post hoc rationalization to, to try to get rid of, you know, uh, some of the overt racism, um, you know, and to move away from that. But, you know, not really. All while uh, living in this space, occupying this uh, space that is always, you know, if not openly white supremacist, it's certainly white supremacy adjacent, right? And, you know, over time, you can see what that does, right? Uh, if there's, you know, you, you might be able to take these principal stands to begin with, but, you know, as a white-dominated, anti-government, right-wing paramilitary group, um, eventually you're going to have to, you know, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's drift, right? And... You know, I think it's far more telling to actually look at the SWAT article, which is something that was put out before Rhodes technically formed the Oath Keepers, uh, to see what, what his real ideological uh, intent was, right? The movement itself, I would say, is really crypto-fascist all along, that a lot of this is just window dressing. It's, it's a, uh, you know, kind of a, a disguised fascist ideology that shares, you know, many elements uh, with what historically we have we have called fascism. But before we do that, I'd like to get caught up on the events since the first episode of season two. So let's look at the numbers uh, with regard to uh, arrests and convictions, etc. and so forth, as always, sourced from Sedition Tracker. There have been, since our last episode, 725 individuals charged, which is an increase of 19. So good pace there. A little less than, than 10, which is, you know, kind of what we'd like to see. Um, there's certainly plenty of people out there to, to, to still be charged. 354 indicted, which is an increase of 12 since the last episode. Three deceased total. One dismissal, as always. Uh, 178 convictions, and that's an increase of eight since the last episode. And 82 sentencings, an increase of 11 since the last episode. Now, two of the individuals newly charged are Edward Vallejo and Elmer Stewart Rhodes, one uh, a member of the Oath Keepers and the other a founder, the founder of the Oath Keepers, uh, and we'll get to them in a moment. But before we get to the latest news on the Oath Keepers, I'd like to talk a little bit about the last episode. Uh, you'll remember that in the last episode, Season 2, Episode 1, 
I spent most of the uh, time in the episode dealing with the question of how sedition cases have been handled in the federal legal system historically. This episode was more timely than I could have imagined. Just six days after the anniversary of January 6th, Rhodes and 10 other Oath Keepers were indicted for seditious conspiracy. I spent most of the episode detailing a series of cases relating to seditious speech. Most of the cases didn't involve seditious conspiracy. Now let me just quote myself from, from my notes. Quote, the most important thing to know is that sedition and insurrection involve intent to overthrow the government, but the practice today is to charge overt acts rather than focusing on the intent to overthrow the government. End quote. So, because that's another element that you have to show. Um, so the charges that have been issued are largely consistent with this. Uh, they just basically tweaked the original conspiracy indictment, added two more defendants, um, and you know they've, they've made a, a number of decisions in how they're, they're, they're charging the group as a whole. But the main thing is that this isn't like the case against Eugene Debs, where Debs was sentenced for sedition because he obliquely referenced a resolution against war by the Socialist Party during a speech he gave in Canton, Ohio. Nor is this case like Dennis v. U.S. in 1951, which was a Smith Act case that criminalized belonging to groups such as the CPUSA, the Communist Party of the United States. In Dennis, the defendants were accused of plotting the overthrow of the government of the United States, but the government presented no specific evidence demonstrating that defendants had anything like a specific plan to actually overthrow the government of the United States. And again, it's part of that long series of cases that relate to, uh, in fact, how the, the court eventually reverses itself with regard to its view of sedition in these kinds of cases. So in his dissent in Dennis, Justice Black wrote the following, quote, These petitioners were not charged with an attempt to overthrow the government. They were not charged with overt acts of any kind designed to overthrow the government. They were not even charged with saying anything or writing anything designed to overthrow the government. The charge that they agreed to assemble and talk and publish certain ideas at a later date. The indictment is that they conspired to organize the Communist Party and to use speech or newspapers and other publications in the future to teach and advocate the forcible throw overthrow of the government. No matter how it is worded, this is a virulent form of prior censorship of speech and press, which I believe the First Amendment forbids, end quote. So the end result of this is, uh, as we, we saw, anti-government speech, even seditious speech, winds up being protected in Brandenburg uh, in 1968. But seditious conspiracy which includes overt acts, is still on the books as a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Now, I know I cited it in the last episode, but here again is what Blacks had to say uh, about this in Yates. Justice Black, quote, The same reasons that make proof of overt acts so important in treason cases apply here. The only overt act which is now charged against these defendants is they went to a constitutionally protected public assembly where they took part in lawful discussion of public questions and where neither they nor anyone else advocated or suggested overthrow the United States government. The new quote begins, In my judgment, 
defendants' attendance at these public meetings cannot be viewed as an overt act to effectuate the, the object of the conspiracy charged. And so this isn't a free speech case. This is a case wherein, according to the government, the defendants conspired together to overthrow the government by interfering with the peaceful transfer of power. With individuals who have a substantial military training, and also weapons, and an armed quick reaction force ready in Arlington, Virginia, to reinforce them in case they wanted to respond to police and National Guard with firearms. So they're not simply being charged with being members of an anti-government paramilitary gang the way communists in the 1940s and 50s were being charged simply for being communists. They're being charged with overt acts to overturn a democratic election. And their own statements are largely uh, you know, used in this prosecution to demonstrate the component of intent. So you've got both of those elements present. You've got these statements about their intent. The Zello recording I played at the intro, even though that's not, we're not actually sure, uh, I believe, who those particular speakers were. Um, but again, acting in concert with them, describing in detail in other places and in emails rather laboriously uh, their intent to overthrow the election, occupy the Capitol, delay certification, uh, essentially hold hostage Congress until they got the results that they wanted. Um, and you've got, you know, I mean, that's pretty clear intent. And they, again, the overt acts attacking the Capitol, the plans, the plot, the quick reaction force, all of these elements, all the firearms, the stockpiling of weapons by roads before the attack and subsequent to the attack. So I'm glad that they opened the dead letter drawer of American jurisprudence, despite the, the risks inherent in this prosecution. The government was unable to do this in the Hootery, I always have a difficult time pronouncing it, Hootery uh, militia case in 2012, uh, but again, in that case, there's a, a question with regard to the seriousness of the seditious conspiracy. Uh, they weren't able to really demonstrate that in the, the militia case uh, back then. Um, there's no real compelling argument that there was really an actual compelling threat to the government of the United States, whereas the capital insurrection actually did delay the certification of electoral votes in the 2020 election and might have succeeded overall if things had gone just a little bit differently. So the seditious conspiracy case against the Oath Keepers is really more like the case against Umar Abdel Rahman, the Egyptian blind sheikh who was convicted of seditious conspiracy in 1995 for the 1993 New York landmark bomb plot. Much like in the Oath Keepers case, that case included evidence and recorded evidence in, in uh, video form that demonstrated overt acts as well as intent. And the government also had secured cooperation from inside Abdel Rahman's organization, similar to in this case where we're seeing four accused Oath Keepers take plea deals. And so defense counsel for Rhodes and the other accused Oath Keepers may try to take this uh, and turn it into a freedom of speech and assembly case, but they're going to have an uphill battle. The overt acts detailed in the government's case make this fundamentally different from cases such as Yates or Brandenburg. These defendants allegedly conspired together 
trained together, brought weapons, uh, and made it inside the Capitol with the overall objective of overturning the certification of Joe Biden's electoral victory in the 2020 presidential election. Now, why is the government just now bringing this charge today? Um, at the very moment that they're adding Rhodes to the case, you know, that's an interesting question in my mind, and it's it's unresolved. Um, was there a faction within the Justice Department that supported charging these defendants with seditious conspiracy all along, and now they've won out for some reason? Or was there some plan all along to charge seditious conspiracy, and the DOJ decided to do it now because they feel that the case is finally strong enough? I don't know, and uh, we'll probably never know, but... I think this whole series of cases that I described in the last episode does account for some part of the reason why the Department of Justice might have been reluctant to charge these defendants with seditious conspiracy from the outset. The fact that they're charging these Oath Keeper defendants with this charge now is a token of the confidence that the government has in its case against them, given all the constitutional concerns and the additional component of intent that they're going to have to show. And we still don't know if this version of the case is in its final form, uh, or whether there's going to be additional defendants, such as Person 10, uh, added, or if there are going to be new charges. Um, I have to imagine that the assistant U.S. attorneys probably want to be done and move ahead with the case and go to trial on this set of charges with this set of defendants, but you never know. I mean, there could be additional facts. Uh, I just mentioned Mike Simmons, the, uh, the other person who's supposedly in overall tactical command on January 6th. Uh, he's named as person 10, hasn't been charged with anything. So that's a bit of a question mark. And there's also the possibility that perhaps people in Trump's inner circle might also be charged with seditious conspiracy for their efforts to circumvent the peaceful transfer of power. It, that's an intriguing possibility. You know, as always, I, again, the, this this charge uh, is harder for the government to, sh to prove rather than the conspiracy to commit obstruction because that other element that they have to prove, right, the intent to overthrow the government. Um, and, you know, that's, again, just another reason why this charge is, is rarely used. Um, I'm also curious as to why the a seditious conspiracy case hasn't been made or brought against uh, the Proud Boys, right? They're bringing this against the Oath Keepers. Well, the Proud Boys kind of did everything the Oath Keepers did as well. With You know, the, the evidence is, is similar. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the case could, could be made that they did everything the Oath Keepers did. And, uh, in fact, there's probably more evidence to show that they planned in advance to invade the capital itself. So part of me, you know, expects that, well, maybe they're they're getting ready to uh, issue a seditious conspiracy case against the Proud Boys. But, you know, as always, I'm not an attorney, and the AUSAs are the ones who actually have to make the case in court. Again, another possibility is the reason why the underlying charge in this case was changed to seditious conspiracy is that, you know, the government wants to bring more seditious conspiracy cases. Jamie Raskin has hinted at this by saying that there are multiple seditious conspiracies. 
he referred to seditious conspiracies in the plural, and he's not the kind of person who would accidentally misspeak on such an important matter. So uh, it could be that bringing a seditious conspiracy case against the Oath Keepers would kind of grease the wheels on bringing these other cases against other defendants, uh, possibly including people who are, you know, doing things inside Trump, Trump's inner circle, possibly including things like the forged electoral certificates that we've seen. All right, so that's my take on, on it. I know I spent last episode explaining all the reasons why the government wouldn't bring uh, sedition charges, and then almost immediately thereafter, the government did uh, sedition charges. I obviously do not have access to the inner workings of the Department of Justice. They are as inscrutable to me as they are to anyone else. Um, nonetheless, you know, you, you love to see it, right? And uh, you'll recall from the last episode that I claimed we're entering a new phase in the Capitol insurrection investigations and that my basic hypothesis is, you know, moving forward that we're going to see more action. Now, confirmation bias exists, right? Uh, but I think, you know, that basic intuition that we are entering a new phase and that there are going to be more developments with increasing rapidity stands up well with regard to the recent developments that we are seeing and that we have seen in just a little over two short weeks. One of the advantages of doing this as a, a regular podcast is that, you know, I can go back and, and look at my notes and there were times in this process where, you know, I had the luxury of taking a lot of time looking in, into some of these subjects in depth um, without having worried too much about latest news developments. Because there wasn't a lot. There was not a lot coming out of the January 6th committee for months. And so, you know, uh, when I initially wrote this up, I, I, I talked about uh, the idea that there's been signs of life from the January uh, 6th committee, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. But I, I think that's probably the wrong phrase to use because it went from absolute radio silence to just nonstop news. Now, what I take that, this as, as really uh, the ability of the January 6th committee to maintain excellent information management, excellent discipline. Congress today, uh, put it bluntly, it leaks like a sieve, Right. Um, they can't do anything without, you know, something coming out. I mean, look at the, the Comey letter, uh, which was uh, linked by Chaffetz uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election. Oh, Jason Chaffetz. I mean, there's a guy I haven't thought about in, in an awful long time. He just kind of disappeared. Man. I, no one, you know, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, as is wholly appropriate in this kind of thing, uh, the committee itself has been leak-proof, uncharacteristically leak-proof, uh, compared to, you know, other congressional committees. But, of course, it's precisely this leak-proof character that increases the significance of information that the committee does, in fact, actually release, whether through official pronouncements or through public statements to indivi by individual members of the committee, uh, or through the occasional anonymously sourced release inf information to the press. Um, for most of the committee's work through the summer and the fall, well, late summer, and then through the fall and early winter, uh, they kept their cards close to the vest. And today, in comparison to this radio silence, 
in comparison to this, you know, one might argue, uh, disciplined approach of maintaining uh, informational control, but also, you know, again, uh, there's a reason for that, right? You don't want to prejudice the outcome. Um, they're practically swaggering around right now. Now, it, it, it's very, very different. Now, and we're, I'm going to detail all the things that have been happening, but, you know, there's a case to be made that says um, they're just constantly firing warning shots or shots across the bow, however you want to put it, aimed right at the heart of the seditious conspiracy that we saw on January 6th. In an earlier episode, I developed a basic typology of the kinds of people that the committee would be interviewing. And I think I can differentiate that a little bit more. Um, so you have Trump loyalists, people who are absolutely committed, willing to go down. And you can have your own favorite candidates in this category. I think people like Roger Stone, it's his brand, right? Willing to go to jail uh, for Trump. Uh, Steve Bannon, you know, he's got money, he's got lawyers. And, you know, um, I mean, we'll see. I mean, of course, that's an interesting, that's an interesting relationship between uh, Stone and and Bannon, uh, that, you know, but maybe they, they would go down more for Trump than they would, either of them would for each other. They're not big fans of one another. Um, Rudy Giuliani, right, uh, who I think has just committed so much crime, allegedly, yeah, you know, um, and being at the center of it, that, you know, he knows, uh, his former prosecutor, that, um, you know, if, if things go to pieces... Um, you know, he, he just, he needs to try to hold together. Oh, then again, I don't know. Maybe he, that's an incentive for him to, to cut a deal so he doesn't die in prison. Who knows? I don't think either, any of those three, and there, there are other people that you might want to put in that category as well. Uh, I don't think any of them are ever going to, you know, rat out Trump. And then there, uh, there's a category where, uh, I think there are people who are Trump loyalists but who nonetheless um, have demonstrated that they have some kind of limit, particularly with regard to their own reputation. Uh, here I'm thinking of people like Mark Meadows and the former Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. Um, you know, they, they don't want to uh, ruin their futures. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, not in the Roger Stone category. Then there are people who are out of the loop, right? I don't know that the committee is going to waste a lot of time on that, but... Uh, there might be people who are adjacent to all this who somehow no recruitment effort was ever made and they don't know anything. Um, and then there are people who are in the loop, perhaps, but unaware of the total scope, right? So they may have part of the picture. They may have thought, well, it's just limited to this, this thing that's happening at the Pentagon or this thing that's happening in the White House, uh, but who now have seen the whole picture uh, and have begun to, you know, put things together uh, or have information that the committee could use to put things together. Then you have people who are, you know, actively subject to recruitment attempts that they may have ultimately rejected. Um, you know, don't know who could go in that, that category, but uh, I, talk, I know I talked about uh, Lutwak's book, um, Coup d'etat. And, you know, this is a danger for, for coup plotters, right? How do you... Uh, recruit the people that you need without blowing the cover on the whole thing before it starts, right? So, I mean, there are probably some people who were approached who ultimately rejected uh, the, the enticements to commit seditious conspiracy. 
Then there are people who are just bitter, who have absolutely no fucks left to give. Um, you know, and again, Dustin Stockton, uh, you know, put him in that category, I think. Um, and there may be a few people who are genuinely shocked at the brazenness of everything and are actually standing on principle, right? So uh, an occasional question I like to ask myself is whether there's someone in the Trump administration who's going to be a John Dean, someone who will be to the Trump administration and the seditious conspiracy, what John Dean was to Watergate during the Nixon administration. Um, I don't know if there's anyone in this crowd, this bunch, who has the character to be a John Dean, but I think people will find their own reasons to cooperate. Now, one such person is Stephanie Grisham. So Stephanie Grisham is someone who served as the White House press secretary, um, but who was serving as Melania Trump's chief of staff on January 6th. What's significant here is that most of the time, when we have had a Trump administration figure testify before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, we don't really hear anything about it. We might get a picture of them showing up to deliver their testimony, but that's about it. That's not the case with Stephanie Grisham. You may recall that Grisham actually resigned from the Trump administration on the evening of January 6th, uh, announcing her resignation in a tweet at 7.59 p.m. She didn't mention the events that day, uh, you know, in her tweet, but, uh, you know, again, immediate resignation, unexplained. We don't know why, but you can kind of infer that for some reason... Uh, what happened on January 6th bothered her on some level. So usually the chief of staff of the first spouse, the first lady in this case, uh, is an important job. Uh, they're at the center of the, the life of the White House, but it's not really an important policy-making job. Uh, nonetheless, Grisham has a history of holding positions of increasing responsibility in the Trump orbit, beginning in the Trump primary campaign as a press aide, and then moving on uh, to other positions. There was an unusual amount of turnover during the course of the entire Trump administration, and yet it's remarkable that Grisham was there from the beginning. She's been a constant figure, and she's served in a variety of positions. So uh, one of them, uh, including the press secretary of the First Lady, twice. So four different positions, one of them... Uh, press secretary, the first lady, she's done that job twice. So it's kind of interesting that someone who's so central uh, to the, the Trump White House, uh, you know, came forward and testified. And then there was significant reporting about her testimony. Um, it was anonymously sourced. Uh, it included uh, sources familiar with the testimony, right? So the reporting that, that you've seen on this uh, has two sources who are familiar with her testimony. And it's claimed that she reported that, quote, the details of whether Trump actually intended the march to the Capitol after his speech at the Ellipse rally would be memorialized in documents provided to the U.S. Secret Service, the sources said. Now, the pertinent document here is a presidential line by line. So she's given testimony saying that, well, you know, and again, apparently in response to a question of 
well, did Trump plan on marching to the Capitol, you know, before, what, what point was that decision made? And she's offered testimony that, well, that's going to be in the presidential line by line, which is something that the committee would know already. So there's, there's that part of it, um, that this particular detail would be released now. It's a strange thing to confirm because it's simply true. It's a matter of normal practice. The Secret Service has all the details of the presidential president's planned movements. And so this would be a matter of record. So it's, it's kind of curious that she was asked this. Um, it, you know, it could be a good example of the t- committee simply getting testimony from a witness to confirm something else that they already know. Now, all the evidence, of course, points to the fact that Trump uh, did, in fact, plan to go to the Capitol when he showed up uh, to the rally at the Ellipse. Um, And it could be that, you know, they're shoring up some request for information from some agency for, you know, they haven't yet secured records from. Um, Now, according to Benny Thompson, the chairman of the uh, House Select Committee, the committee has requested these very records from the Secret Service. So you can read between the lines if you want. The, the testimony is being made public in an effort to obtain cooperation from the Secret Service, um, who may be using security concerns as a kind of a cover to avoid full disclosure, <coughs> uh, their own complicity, whatever. Now, it's a bit of a tangent here, but there have been any number of questions about the conduct of the Secret Service dur- during the, the Trump administration, right? So... You know, they may have some kind of interest in not disclosing what they know about the president's planned movements on January 6th. More intriguing part of this is, of course, the fact that the committee is exploring the issue of how it was that the rally at the Ellipse became a march to the Capitol. Now, of what consequence of it is, is it that the president intended to march on the Capitol from the Ellipse? Again, this goes to intent. Trump said he was going to do it, and he didn't. Now, is there a record showing that he planned to do it? Did he plan to do it but get shut down by the Secret Service? Now, that is the version of events that's uh, included in the reporting by Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, which was this. Trump had always planned on marching to the Capitol, but was, you know, and he was effectively campaigning to, uh, you know, get this march to the Capitol happening in the days leading up to January 6th. But he was rebuffed by the Secret Service, and the Secret Service told him that they wouldn't be able to provide security for him under that set of circumstances. But we don't necessarily know that 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 is true. And, I mean, there have been um, people who point to some other flaws in uh, that particular reporter that we don't need to go into at, at the present moment. But what we do know is that the groups such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers always knew that the event of the Ellipse was going to become a march to the Capitol. Now, that's significant because there's a direct link between what Trump said at the Ellipse and what happened thereafter at the Capitol. Indeed, as I discussed in Episode 3, Monkey See, Monkey Do, the Proud Boys left the Ellipse early and had arrived at the Capitol before Trump's speech at the Ellipse had even ended. That's a key detail that that some reporting, even today, misses. Um, For example, a timeline put out by NPR on January 5th notes only, uh, January 5th, 2022, obviously, notes only, quote, 
And even before Trump ends his speech, crowds from his rally start to gather outside the U.S. Capitol. End quote. Now, you, again, you might want to mention, not just parts of the crowd, not just random people. It, it was the Proud Boys. So it, it's not a trifling question. And it's important to get this question right. The vanguard of the Proud Boys left the ellipse to travel to the Capitol at 10.58 a.m. Trump doesn't even begin speaking until noon, and so he hadn't even told the assembled crowd to march to the Capitol yet. And yet, you know, you've got the Proud Boys already leaving. So that's why the question of what the president's plans were, what Trump's plans were, were so important. We know the Proud Boys aren't psychic, and there were many online conversations about the attack on the Capitol as early as December. So it's significant that the Proud Boys if you recall, the very same group that Trump had told to stand by during the presidential debate on Tuesday, September 28th, appeared to have foreknowledge of Trump's plan to march on the Capitol. Now, according to one source, um, Trump reportedly knew that he wouldn't be able to go to the Capitol, but he aimed to send the crowd to the Capitol in an effort to turn the crowd into a mob and forestall the certification of the Electoral College tally. And again, that is a plan that very much fits in with what we know from the Eastman memo. Now, the other story that is interesting that emerges from Stephanie Grisham's testimony is that Trump held a series of secret meetings in the White House in the days leading up to January 6th. Again, uh, this is not the first time we've heard this, uh, but this Source this information that has come out um, from the, the Grisham testimony from these two anonymous sources uh, give more details, such as the fact that these meetings were scheduled by Mark Meadows, which, of course, they would be. Um, and also that very few people in the White House knew about the meetings. And also that this is a really unusual detail that I was very interested to hear about. The meetings were conducted in the residence rather than the formal business areas in the West Wing of the White House. Um, and that admittance to the meetings was controlled by the former chief usher, Timothy Harleth, who's also a former Trump Organization employee. And that, again, according to these two anonymous sources familiar with the testimony, Grisham also claimed that Peter Navarro once secretly tried to bring Sidney Powell into the White House. So, all in all, uh, we're seeing the committee really turning up the heat. And again, this is just one thing. This is just Stephanie Grisham. Uh, they're turning up the heat on Trump, and they're turning up the heat on the witnesses. Now, with regard to um, the president's schedule uh, maintained by the Secret Service, it's a foregone conclusion that the committee is going to get the documents that they've requested from the Secret Service, if they haven't already. Uh, why? Well, that's another bit of news. On January 19th, the Supreme Court ruled that 700 pages of documents sought by the committee from the National Archives would be released to the January 6th committee, uh, which was upholding, basically, that the decision had already been made by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. In fact, quote, because the Court of Appeals concluded that President Trump's claims would have failed even if he were the incumbent, his status as a former president necessarily made no difference to the court's decision, end quote. So, so much for the, the question of a former executive privilege. The decision leaves open the question of whether or not, uh, you know, such a thing might actually exist. 
um, but does affirm the lower court decision that Trump's privilege claim doesn't meet the standard, and it wouldn't have met the standard even if he were still president. So Justice Kavanaugh issued a statement uh, with the ruling that made a number of noises about the need for confidentiality. But even Kavanaugh winds up with this, quote, the Court of Appeals concluded that the privilege claim at issue here would not succeed even under the Nixon and Senate Select Committee tests. Therefore, as this court's order today makes clear, the Court of Appeals' broader statements questioning whether a former president may successfully invoke the presidential communications privilege if the current president does not support the claim were dicta and should not be considered binding president moving forward. So, again, there's two components there, right? So you say, yeah, they, they were right, um, but we're just, you know, want to make it clear that we're, we're not going to settle this issue with regard to the, the need for current presidential approval of a uh, claim of executive privilege by a former president. So, um, you know, it's, again, that's, that's a moot point, right? That's, and that's what he says. He finds specifically that the claims made by Trump don't meet the current standard for executive privilege. Now, it's kind of a little bit of a legal hissy fit on his part. But the important part is that even Kavanaugh, uh, who winds up, you know, putting this little statement uh, in the, the very, very short opinion uh, that the court put out, um, even he joins with the majority. In fact, um, you know, there are three of Trump appointees on the court, which is a lot for a one-term president, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, and Comey Barrett, and they all sided with the majority. So, you know, you just have Clarence Thomas out on his lonesome. Eight to one decision saying, no, you know what? You have the right to these documents. So this whole process began with a, a records request to the National Archives on August 25th. And the House Select Committee finally obtained over 700 pages on January 21st. We don't know everything that's contained therein, but a declaration by B. John Laster appended to the original court filing by the House Select Committee does give a detailed list of the contents without disclosing the contents of the contents, if that makes any sense. It's basically just a list. Laster details that the efforts by the National Archives were exhaustive and included searching through 100 million emails in order to find documents relative to the committee's request. Now, searching through, right? I mean, they're dealing with time frames. Maybe they're dealing with search terms. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it sounds like 100 million. That, that's an awfully big number. Like, they went through every email uh, during the course of the, the entire Trump White House. So I'm going to go through uh, here a little bit of what, uh, according to Laster, again, this National Archives official, what was included uh, in this release of information that the, the committee... Uh, I'm sure the committee staff and committee members are now pouring over, even as I'm recording this. So on October 13th, the committee got its first tranche of material from the White House, 90 pages over which Trump had uh, not attempted to exert executive privilege. Then um, there's a series of notifications, right, where the committee uh, is, you know, getting notifications of files that they, you know, have requested uh, that meet the criteria. 
136 pages altogether, the first notification. The files of Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, the files of Senior Advisor of the President Stephen Miller, the files of Deputy Counsel of the President Patrick Philbin, the White House Daily Diary, uh, which is chronological record of the President's movements, phone calls, trips, briefings, meetings, and activities, the White House Office of Records Management documents, and the files of Brian de Guzman, who is Director of White House Information Services. Now, yeah, among that tranche, the items that Trump uh, attempted to claim privilege over were the daily presidential diaries, schedules, appointment information, showing visitors to the White House. Why wouldn't he want that? Remember, he's trying to smuggle Sidney Powell in uh, for secret meetings in, in, in the residence with Peter Navarro. The activity logs, the call logs, and the switchboard shift change checklist showing calls to the president and vice president, all specifically for or encompassing January 6, 2021. That's 30 pages of documents. The committee has that now. And again, this is the stuff Trump didn't want the committee to get. The drafts of speeches, remarks, and correspondence concerning the events of January 6, 2021, 13 pages. And um, handwritten notes concerning the events of January 5th, January 6th, excuse me, from Mr. Meadows' files, which is three pages. All right, then there's the second notification, which includes 724 pages of records. And this included... The files of Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, the White House Office of the Executive Clerk's files, files from the White House Oval Office operations, files of White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, and the files of Senior Advisor to the uh, President Stephen Miller. The items that Trump, uh, among that, uh, tried to claim privilege over included pages from multiple binders containing proposed talking points for the Press Secretary, interspersed with a relatively small number of related statements and documents, principally relating to allegations of voter fraud, election security, and other topics concerning the 2020 election. That's 629 pages. Presidential activity calendars and related handwritten note for January 6, 2021, and for January 2021 generally, including January 6, that's 11 pages. And this is interesting. The draft text of a presidential speech for the January 6, 2021 Save America March, 10 pages. Boy, I, I wonder what that says. A handwritten note from former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows files listing potential or scheduled briefings and telephone calls concerning the January 6 certification and other election issues, two pages. And a draft executive order on the topic of election integrity, four pages. I will return to that item in a moment. So that's the second notification, uh, over 700 pages. Third notification is 146 pages, from all, including documents from the White House Office of the Executive Clerk and the files of Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin. Philbin, excuse me. The items that Trump actually tried to exert privilege over are a draft proclamation honoring the Capitol case. Uh, sorry, honoring Capitol Police and deceased officers Brian Sicknick and Howard Liebengood. You wonder what he said dur during that. I, I, I mean, I don't even. I'm just boggles mind. Related emails 
from the files of the offices of the executive clerk. So that's 53 pages. It took 53 pages for, for, for him to, to uh, you know, do this proclamation. Um, I, 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 again, I wonder, like, is that like multiple attempts? You know, is this kind of like the video? Records from the files of Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin, including a memorandum apparently originating inside the White House regarding a potential lawsuit by the United States against several states President Biden won. Four pages. An email chain originating from a state official regarding election-related issues. Three pages. Talking points on alleged election irregularities in one Michigan county, Antrim County. We know that now, right? We, I, I, we know that from the gang. It's the one, one example. It's it just really, really, really strange. They keep pushing uh, this this lie about a, count, a county that, you know, Trump wins by 60. I mean, you got 6% of the vote. You know, your proof of, of election fraud occurs in a county that, that Trump won and is just is easily accounted for. Anyway, a document containing presidential findings uh, concerning the security of the 2020 presidential election and ordering various actions. Three pages. Uh, again, I think we know that. And it's, it's interesting that the um, it refer, that's referred to as a document here, whereas uh, the, the original Laster... Uh, information. It refers to it as a draft executive order. I'll get to that in a minute. And notes apparently, uh, including some from uh, the foregoing, were sent. So the, the people already mentioned, uh, I'm assuming that refers to uh, Patrick Philbin and some of the other persons. So the committee has all that. They have all that stuff, all the good stuff that Trump, you know. And again, any one of these things is probably a, a bombshell. Uh, but I just want to go back to, to one item that I drew your attention to because it's the one that we actually have. And again, why do we have it? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Now, uh, it's called a, a draft executive order. Um, as you probably by now know, the select committee has decided to make that document public. Now, I think there's some confusion in the reporting on this. So this is why you listen to this pod podcast that I record on a potato, right? This is your value added. Um, most of the reporting on this document is describing it as a, quote, draft executive order, because that's how it's described in the testimony from Laster, that National Archives official I was just talking about, the one who compiled the list I just read. So that's fine, whatever. Problem is, if you look at the document itself, you'll find it's not a draft executive order. The formal title of the document is, quote, presidential findings. So what is that? What's the difference? Presidential finding is a document created to comply with the requirements of the law regarding covert activities conducted by our intelligence agencies abroad. So by definition, this would have been classified, right? And by definition, the target audience would have been, not have been the public. Uh, but, you know, various, quote, stakeholders in the intelligence community uh, and even uh, the relevant committees uh, in Congress for the purposes of congressional oversight. So it's not an executive order. Um, and this is really, really weird because the document itself refers to activities within the United States. Well, why is this? Because we're not supposed to be engaged in uh, foreign intelligence operations in the United States by definition, Right. Uh, so there's a mismatch between the type of document that it claims to be and what it appears to do. It's a fundamental mismatch. Um, it's as though you, you know, you went to a, a your pharmacist uh, 
uh, with a, a note from, you know, your, your kid's teacher, right? I mean, it, this is, these are not documents. This is not the document that, that you need to be, be doing these things. So uh, it cites two national security memoranda, memorandum 13 and memorandum 21. Um, we don't know much about 13 and we know absolutely nothing about 21. Uh, what we do know about uh, presidential memorandum 13 is that it apparently relates to cybersecurity authority. Uh, and again, we didn't even know about the existence of 21 until just now. So what's the significance? Um, you know, could it be that the Trump administration has attempted to use this intelligence process that is designed to ensure oversight and accountability for foreign intelligence operations and has in this findings process? You know, that's what it's been for, for decades. Have they somehow circumvented this process uh, to give itself unilateral power over domestic affairs using international cybersecurity threats as a kind of cover. Now, this uh, presidential national security memorandum, sorry, national security presidential memorandum 21, sorry, no, 13, um, it wasn't even made available to Congress uh, until 17 months after it had come into effect. It comes into effect in 2018, and uh, it, it is promulgated to Congress uh, as the, quote, United States Cyber Operations Policy, uh, NSPM 13, in March 2020. And again, at that point, it had been operation for, for nearly two years. And we have no idea what uh, NSPM 21 has, right? Did it create some sort of process whereby the president has a power to issue executive orders by presidential findings? Um, do, you know, does it have to be relevant to cybersecurity? Uh, or, and this is another possibility, right? So, you know, again, did Trump somehow give himself uh, a executive, you know, um, <laughs> the power to, to exert uh, this kind of executive order through the form of presidential finding, which, which again, would be really weird. And if the courts knew about it, which they didn't, they, they would strike down is just clearly unconstitutional. We have basic principles of separation of powers. We have the intent of Congress. We have all those things. Or, and there's another possibility, um, is this simply an example of someone who doesn't know what they're doing, right? Who doesn't know that, no, no, you don't get to uh, authorize all these broad actions in the form of a presidential finding. Uh, you know, is it... Could it be, for example, someone working in intelligence services who's used to uh, working with these findings, uh, dealing with things uh, overseas, who is just somehow so, you know, cued into these uh, secret memoranda, but also at the same time completely ignorant of, the, of how the entire uh, prohibition against doing intelligence in the United States against American civilians and entities works? Ah, it's the Trump administration, right? I mean, both of these things are possible. But, again, to me, that's what's weird, right? Because most of the press recording reporting on this calls it a draft executive order. It's not. It's not. That's clear. It's a presidential finding. Um, but the thing is, no kind of presidential finding that we know about grants the president the authority to do any of the kinds of things that he says he wants to do in the document itself. 
So the presidential finding uh, also cites a whole bunch of uh, a lot of the same material we've we've seen before. They use the long since debunked example of Antrim County, Michigan, uh, to say that well, there's flaws in the voting machines, and they just on no basis whatsoever extrapolate from this example that again is an, occurred in a county that Trump won by sixty percent, uh, rather won with sixty percent, to say that quote. There's also probable cause to find the Dominion voting systems, Smartmatic, electronic systems and software, and Heart InterCivic, Clarity Election Night Reporting, Edison Research, Sequoia, Skittle, and similar or related entities, agents or signs, have the same flaws and were subject to foreign interference in the 2020 election in the United States, end quote. Now, this is complete and utter nonsense, of course. This isn't even the kooky theory about Dominion machines. It is a list of every election equipment manufacturer in the United States, even to include, quote, similar or related entities. They're, they're leaving this giant, you know, they're saying every election, even, even the ones we don't know about, even the ones we accidentally omitted. Um, they're making assertion about supposed errors in election systems that they can't even be bothered to name. So... And, of course, they also make some false claims about Georgia. So on the basis of these two things, they then claim it's necessary for the Secretary of Defense to, quote, seize, collect, retain, and analyze all machines, equipment, electronically stored information, and material records, end quote, and to use a National Guard to do it. This is the sort of thing that, historically, the United States might have done in a country where the powers that be didn't like the election results. Historically, we've done this kind of thing to other countries. Um, the involvement of the military in elections is actually a, a bright line in our system between actually functioning democracies and authoritarian states. We don't know if the Trump administration, you know, uh, tried to involve the, the military beyond the drafting of this uh, finding or memorandum um, that clearly is unconstitutional would have been challenged in court and struck down on, you know, six or seven or eight different levels. But it is worth remembering that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said in October in an interview with NPR, quote, there's no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of a U.S. election. Zero. There is no role there. End quote. Which is a strange and oddly specific thing for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to have to say a couple of weeks before the election. It's almost as if your lawn care company just announced out of the blue that they don't do brain surgery, right? So we don't know, you know, did uh, how much of this did uh, Millie, you know, see coming down the pike? Were there secret conversations? And, oh, by the way, we, we, we might call on the Pentagon to, to, you know, seize election equipment across the United States, again, in October, right? So... Yeah. Um, again, that's just one thing. That's just, you know, a four-page document. And there's dozens of other documents cited, and it's not terribly specific. But if they're as bad as this one, then, uh, you know, the committee has its hands full. So, the Grisham story, right? And then this um, leaked... Uh, finding, presidential finding slash draft executive order, we're not, you know, 
I'm not sure what to call it. It's a new cat. They have to invent a new category of document to describe this thing. Uh, and even as I was writing this, there was yet another release of information from the House Select Committee, or rather another anonymous source, quote, familiar with the work of the committee. Once again, the reporting is from Politico, which I think we can now declare is the preferred outlet for the committee to release this kind of information with uh, for some reason. Apparently, Bernie Carrick, the former New York City police commissioner and Trump pardon recipient, told the January 6th committee that the author of the plan to seize the voting equipment and National Guard was, in fact, Phil Waldron, which some of you probably knew already. So, author of the crazy PowerPoint, uh, and it came to light, uh, again, because it was uh, among the documents supplied to the committee by, by Mark Meadows. So, Waldron was behind this presidential finding uh, and also behind the Mark Meadows PowerPoint. So, there you go. That's just three pages of what the committee now has. Documentary evidence of a draft plan by the president to unconstitutionally seize election equipment across the country and to use the Department of Defense and the National Guard to do it. It's, um, you know, again, Department of Defense has no authority over elections in the United States, period. And if a loser has a problem with how an election is administered, they can take it up with the courts, which, of course, Trump did. And he and his proxies lost at least 63 cases, which, of course, is why they drafted a plan to turn to the military. They lost the election, they lost in court, so finally they planned to turn to the military to stage a coup by seizing election equipment nationwide. Now, to add to all this, uh, this is a public statement. Um, at the same time that he confirmed that the House Select Committee was meeting with Department of Defense officials regarding the election equipment plot, Chairman Benny Thompson confirmed that the House Select Committee had also spoken with former Trump Attorney General William Barr. Now, many press reports have, have characterized this meeting as cooperation, um, but Trump, uh, sorry, Trump, um, Benny Thompson himself has not used the word cooperation. Uh, cooperation means different things to, to different people, right? I, I, you know, I think Mark Meadows might say that he is cooperating, uh, for example. So uh, all we know is that Barr is, in fact, in some level, working with the committee. But I mention that here in this context because the draft memo is dated, um, or again, executive order slash presidential finding. The date on it is December 16th. 2020, and Bill Barr's resignation was announced on December 15th, 2020. Is that a coincidence? I'm not sure. Uh, but the select committee was going to have to ask him about this coincidence if they haven't done so uh, already. Whatever Barr testifies to, he's in a real bind. What did he see that was bad enough to justify his 11th, his 11th hour resignation uh, you know, final days of the Trump administ administration, uh, you know, and what, do you just want to take a holiday? I, I don't think so. If his resignation was in response to learning about this kind of plot, then why on earth wouldn't he raise a public alarm? So he's in a different category from someone like Stephanie Grisham, even though he resigned earlier than Grisham did. As Attorney General of the United States, Barr had a duty to uphold the Constitution. It's part of his job description. He's supposed to be top law enforcement officer. 
If the president is violating the law, he's supposed to do the right thing. So he doesn't appear to have done that. He just, you know, uh, resigns. And not immediately, right? I mean, he announces on the 15th. I think he left office on the 22nd or 23rd, uh, right before Christmas. Also, on January 20th of this year, the House Select Committee made an information request of Ivanka Trump, a step that they kind of have to take before they issue her with a subpoena. This particular information request is very specific, and it's clear that the Grisham testimony is part of what they're asking about. And they asked very detailed questions about four different things. The first thing they wanted is any information regarding Trump's efforts to, quote, obstruct or impede the counting of electoral votes. And obstruct is the right word. Now, earlier they, they say impede, then later on they say obstruct in, in, or impede. Uh, and again, considering that obstruction of official proceeding has been one of the charges used against January 5th and 6th defendants, that's, that's a, 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 you know, an important word for the committee to use in this context. And um, the committee itself, you know, in this documentary uh, request uh, or request for uh, information, they're very specific about the conversations to which Ivanka may have been privy, such as the, the uh, conversation between Trump and Pence on the morning of January 6th. So Ivanka knows, knows about that, and she also, you know, may have information to give about what was actually said uh, at that conversation. So, you know, and again, it's like, I, I think this, you know, it's great that they're they're getting very specific about these things because, you know, rather than these sort of blanket invocations of, of some kind of privilege, you know, they're, they're, they're forcing uh, the hand of, the, of these witnesses, right? They're going to have to get, uh, you know, give detailed answers uh, or just, you know, take the Fifth Amendment. But again, that's not a blanket solution for them either. Second thing they want is Trump's response to the march on the Capitol. They want to know what she knows about his response to the march to the Capitol, uh, particularly with regard to his 2.24 p.m. tweet, which is something that, you know, I think has received a lot of coverage. Um, but it's the, the, the tweet that you will recall that sends the uh, mob into uh, a real fervor of uh, viciousness. Uh, you know, he just they they go all off off the rails after Trump tweets out the following quote: "Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones they were asked to previously certify." USA demands the truth. So, you know, General Kellogg testified that Ivanka was dispatched to talk to her father to, and to tell the mob to go home. And the committee wants to know about that conversation as well, as well as her overall assessment of Trump's state of mind around that time of day. The third thing they want to know is that the committee plainly states they know Trump does not want to appear to have contacted anyone about ordering the National Guard. And the committee wants to know what Ivanka knows about that, whether she was privy to any conversations about whether or not the National Guard should be ordered to the Capitol. 
Fourth thing they want to know about is um, the committee cites texts between Sean Hannity and Kaylee McEnany about the need to isolate Trump from, quote, crazy people. They want to know what she knows about any efforts by White House staff to isolate Trump from these crazy people, right? And again, goes directly to the Grisham testimony, these secret meetings in the White House residence um, that people, you know, were uh, brought into, you know, and again, Peter Navarro trying to secretly bring uh, Sidney Powell into, you know, these secret meetings. All right, so that's the Cliff Notes version of what the information request of Ivanka Trump entails. Um, what's new and different, of course, is that it's so specific and it relies on information from other sources that the committee definitely has, i.e. General Kellogg's testimony, uh, Stephanie Grisham's testimony, uh, Sean Hannity's text messages, etc. So if you take all these things together, what you have is, is a committee that's been remarkably silent and then suddenly beginning to show a lot of its cards. They've won the court cases that the Trump administration had used to try to obstruct the investigation. They've demonstrated that they have useful information from cooperating witnesses regarding January 6th and the goings-on at the White House in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th. They know about the secret meetings, and they have the visitor logs. And now we have an information request for Ivanka, Trump's favorite child. And we know that she's clearly the favorite, because on the 22nd of January, Michael Cohen appeared on MSNBC to say that Trump had told him to protect Ivanka at all costs, even if that meant Don Jr. went to jail because Trump believed Don Jr., quote, could handle it. Again, that was back when uh, Cohen was working for Trump before he wound up uh, taking the fall for him. So again, a lot of people, you know, get, get embittered in Trump's orbit and they, they might know some things. Um, also, uh, another witness, uh, who is feeling some pressure at this point is John Eastman. John Eastman is fighting the committee over his Chapman University emails. Um, we don't know who he corresponds, he, 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 he was in correspondence, of course, uh, with Meadows, perhaps, uh, you know, somebody at Trump White House, Giuliani, we don't know. Um, but Eastman has claimed attorney-client privilege, executive privilege, every kind of privilege, uh, in addition to taking the Fifth Amendment over 150 times. And again, that's something we know about because the committee has, has told us that. Now, that didn't work. Chapman University, Eastman's former employer, has announced that they're handing over the emails to the committee. Uh, they, they announced it before there was a court decision. Um, and, you know, they said, well, if the court rules against us, we're going to hand it over. And they did. So an attorney-client privilege review is going to be done under court supervision, and the judge has ordered that this review should be conducted expeditiously. We still don't know under what terms Eastman was hired by Trump, or what kind of payment Eastman received. Eastman's definitely in hot water, having issued some very disingenuous statements publicly, including an interview with National Review, wherein he claims that his memo was just a thought experiment, never mind what you actually read in the memo itself. And you can't go around giving interviews on the subject and still claim, you know, executive privilege here, right? I mean, the fact that he fought so hard to keep the emails on his employer's private server tells you everything you need to know. He's lying. 
He's been lying from the beginning, and the emails will show that this wasn't some, you know, just one crazy scenario among many. His whole purpose in all this was to overturn the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris through extra-constitutional means. His statements about the facts of what happened have been every bit as false and misleading as his claim that the memo, uh, in the memo itself, that the Vice President of the United States has the unilateral authority to determine election outcomes, which he talks about, it's like, well, you know, this has been suggested in articles. No serious student of election law has ever actually suggested this. All right. Uh, another potential witness, Alex Jones. Alex Jones also appeared before the committee and took the Fifth Amendment more than 100 times. He claimed that the government somehow got access to his phone because they showed him text messages from his phone. In completely unrelated news, Brandon Straka, uh, an influencer, who's been friends with Jones for many years and has exchanged messages with him, was sentenced to three years as a result of his plea agreement. Um, uh, now, those emails were, or texts weren't mentioned, but Jones said that he saw texts that he exchanged with Caroline Wren and Cindy Chafian, uh, organizers, fundraisers, uh, you know, again, part of that, that central center circle of people who helped organize uh, the events on January 6th that eventually wind up becoming... Uh, the Capitol insurrection. Both of these people received uh, subpoenas earlier this year. So, you know, Jones said, well, I, I saw these text messages that I sent to these people, and I don't know how the government got them. And we know that these people, you know, both these women received subpoenas. So I don't know if Alex Jones is going to solve the case of how the committee got a hold of these text messages from people who've gotten subpoenas from the committee. Uh, maybe his attorneys will spell it out to him. I, I don't know. Oh, and in addition to all this, it appears that Mark Meadows' aide, Ben Williamson, appeared before the January 6th committee for over six hours. So the committee is, is just moving closer to the center of the web, and all these revelations uh, seem aimed at showing that they mean business. The committee's asked Ivanka Trump to appear on February 3rd or 4th, whatever's convenient for her schedule, so we can all look forward to that. Wish that was public, right? Um, committees demonstrated that they know enough about what was happening that, you know, she should probably tell the truth, right? I, I mean, I'm not holding my breath. I think it's probably going to take a subpoena for her to get in there, but you never know. Uh, Ivanka, and moving forward, I think other witnesses as well, are going to have to act as though the committee already knows all the pertinent details because there's, there's a possibility of perjury, right? So beyond Ivanka, there's Ivanka's father. There's Donald Trump himself. At this point, he knows what the committee has. And I think a lot of this is aimed at making him and his attorneys nervous. The committee's moved very quickly from not saying anything to showing some of their cards and letting uh, Trump and his inner circle of plotters know, you know, that they've got other stuff. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages, uh, hundreds of hours of testimony. So for weeks and months, just radio silence, and they carried out their work behind closed doors, and now it's just a deluge of damning testimonies and documents that have been handed over the press, uh, mainly, as, as we've seen, Politico. So my hunch here is that they can keep up with this for quite some time. Uh, it's a lot like the video footage of the insurrection itself. You know, where is the video footage? Okay, well, they, they release more video footage, and there's nothing that exonerates them. It, it always makes them worse, look worse. 
every data point always makes what happens look even worse. And the committee is accelerating the pressure campaign on the inner circle in advance of these public hearings, uh, which, according to Chairman Benny Thompson, should occur sometime this spring. Now, if there is a smoking gun, you know, something like financial records from Dustin Stockton showing that the organizers paid for flights and accommodations for some of the most violent members of the mob, I don't think that's something that's going to be released to Politico anytime soon. Something that damning would be time for a maximum impact on public opinion. The process itself is not supposed to be political, but, you know, the midterms are looming, and I've always had suspicion that the committee is going to want to try to shift public opinion in advance of voting. So polling data in the summer, uh, you know, before the election, right? Uh, summer before the election is usually predictive of election outcomes. So it may well be that we're going to get public hearings later in the spring rather than earlier in order to move the needle there because, you know, um, the, the basically the less salient information is, uh, you know, the, the less people respond to it, right? So you don't want this to be considered old news by the time voters go to fall next November. Uh, yeah, so go, go to the polls, sorry, uh, next fall in November. All right. So I know that's probably not everything from the last episode uh, up to this one, but it's what I feel are the highlights. And I actually do want to move on to the subject of the Oath Keepers and not record a three-hour episode, so I'm going to leave it at that. So now we move on to the main subject of the episode, last half of the episode, uh, the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers were founded in 2009 by Elmer Stewart Rhodes, who I'm just going to call Stuart Rhodes from now on, even though I don't think there's anything wrong with the name Elmer. And I think he's rather quick to ditch Elmer in favor of Stuart, a name that I personally will always associate with the beloved mouse character created and popularized by E.B. White in his 1945 children's literature classic that later became the subject of a 1999 film starring Gina Davis and Hugh Laurie. Anyway, the Oath Keepers would characterize themselves as a nonpartisan political movement. This, of course, is complete fiction. They are a far-right group. Their membership is estimated at 5,000 dues-paying members, although I've seen estimates as low as 3,500 and other estimates as high as 40,000. Uh, there was a leak not too long ago of uh, their membership information uh, I think their mailing list contained 38,000 people altogether. Uh, that probably, I would guess, includes everyone who's ever been a dues-paying member of the Oath Keepers. So um, the fact that you know these numbers vary so much is really a clarion call for the need for transparency with regard to the regulation of paramilitary gangs in America. Now, membership is $50 a year. Uh, at the base level, but it, it goes up from there. You could be a Liberty Tree member for sustaining payments of $10 a month, for example, or even a lifetime member for a thousand bucks or $1,500 for a couple, uh, a deal that really pays off for itself over the course of 20 years. Um, yeah. In addition, state level organizations have their own dues structure. So in Utah, the state-level group membership costs an additional $50 annually. So 
even at the low end, from dues alone, Rhodes is raking in $175,000 a year from members, and not even counting the lifetime memberships for members who are bad at math. If a high investment of $40,000 is correct, of course, which I doubt it is, it is $2 million a year uh, just in dues payment alone, uh, let alone, you know, sales of Oathkeeper's swag from their website. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center and other people who study the far right characterize the Oath Keepers as loosely organized. So if you look at the organizational chart, the org chart, you've got Stuart Rhodes, the founder, at the top uh, as a, the leader. Uh, you've also got an acting president. Uh, at the current time, one Kelly Sorrell uh, and a board of directors, which consists of, of eight individuals. Um, and there's some confusion about Kelly Sorrell uh, because uh, in his appeal for requests for, uh, to be released from pretrial detention, um, Rhodes apparently said that he was in a relationship with Kelly Sorrell, uh, but later in a tweet, Kelly Sorrell said no, which is just kind of odd, right? I mean, she's saying basically that Stuart Rhodes is a liar. Uh, so, you know, which is it, right? Uh, she said, no, you know, he's just trying to get released and, uh, you know, he just wants out of jail. So, you know, I it just, I thought, I mean, that that's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess whatever their personal life is, you know, um, but yeah, whatever he thought he had going on with Kelly, uh, she's saying it, it ain't all that. Now, in any event, um... It looks like, you know, speaking of, of release from pretrial detention, of course, that's not happening. So the federal magistrate judge has ordered that Rhodes be detained. And it turns out that one member of one sedition hunting group that goes by the name Capital Terrorist Exposers found evidence that showed that a proposed custodian in California, uh, Stuart Rhodes's half-brother's daughter's husband, uh, who's identified only as Benjamin, has actually been involved with Oathkeeper activities when he claimed no involvement. So uh, the judge said, no, that's not a good custodian. I mean, they had proposed another custodian who's a political consultant in Texas, and of course, like, no, this guy is not good. Um, and, you know, again, you're looking at the, the, uh, the half-brothers, uh, daughter's um, husband, right? So, you know, half-nephew, I'm not, I mean, I, whatever. He's burning through his relatives, and um, they're not, you know, uh, again, on the basis of this, this video evidence that was found out by, you know, discovered by uh, a member of Capital Terrorist Exposers, um, the judge discovered the truth of this, and... Uh, that's, you know, big shout out to Capital Terrorist Exposers. Uh, excellent work. You, you've been working to uh, save democracy. Um, that's just, you know, yeah, a good find. Basically, you know, Stuart Rhodes is lying in, in his, his court documents. Uh, who, you know, go figure. Um, hopefully, you know, maybe there'll be consequences for someone, right? I mean, where does attorneys know that, that Rhodes is lying about this? Now, the day after the detention hearing, uh, the judge also, uh, the judge comes out on, at, on the day of the hearing and says, well, I'll let you know between 40, uh, 24 and 48 hours. And apparently after the hearing, 
um, Rhodes's uh, wife, who's been seeking a divorce since I believe 2018, Tasha Adams, uh, called them and said, perhaps you might like to hear from me. And uh, so she contacted the court on the day of the hearing and, you know, said, ah, you know, I might have something that you might find relevant. Now, I almost don't even know where to start with what, you know, she actually uh, wound up telling the court. It's all detailed in the judge's order that denies Rhodes's request to be released. There's 17 pages. And in a telephonic interview, uh, Tasha Adams explained that her husband was, surprise, surprise, not a person of good moral character. Uh, she described how during their marriage, when Rhodes would get angry, he would challenge the children to martial arts lessons and then proceed to hit them under the guise of teaching them self-defense. And at one point, she described Rhodes choking his own daughter so violently that their adult son, Dakota, had to intervene to loosen Rhodes's fingers from her neck. And she also told the court that she saw Rhodes as a potential family annihilator. She didn't use that word, but that's what people call them, right? These uh, men, usually, who kill their spouse or their partner and their children and then turn the guns on themselves. And, you know, that's what she feared. She feared that he would come to the house, kill her and all the children, uh, and turn the gun on himself. So she also described that Rhodes had a long-standing fear of arrest by federal authorities and that he had installed an elaborate system of escape tunnels in the backyard. So kudos to Tasha Adams for coming forward. Uh, that is a real act of bravery. It's one thing when a woman struggles to leave a man who's abused her, um, which unfortunately is far too common, right? And this is over the course of decades. But, you know, this is someone who also has a national network of armed terrorists. And that's an order of magnitude worse. And, you know, I mean, I, I would think that the government hopefully could consider what they could possibly do to offer the, the family some protection. Um, what's a little disappointing to me was the, the idea that the government actually appeared not to have solicited Tasha Adams' testimony. You know, she had to call the court uh, herself. Um, and, you know, they, they decided to, to schedule that telephonic. I mean, that is kind of mind-blowing, right? I mean, on the one hand, you've got the defense who are tracking down distant relatives to, to offer letters and say, you know, I'll be the custodian. On the other hand, the government says, well, who could possibly know about any of this stuff, you know? And they, they overlook prop, you know, the most obvious person who was there from the very beginning and who has all the information. That that person, it shouldn't be incumbent on them to, to, to make a phone call to the AUSAs, right? Um, you know, the government uh, should, you know, you take a little initiative. I mean, that is, that's pretty disappointing. I know there are many excellent AUSAs working these cases, um, you know, uh, under circumstances that are, are trying. Nonetheless, that is a, a little disappointing. Hopefully they, they'll be better. So in the 17-page ruling, uh, the court lists numerous reasons why they don't, the judge didn't want to release Rhodes. And these are reasons that appear eminently sensible. Um, they've Courts have released other defendants that, you know, I feel the same way about, right? I mean, uh, they, they've released some people that I'm like, why on earth would you, would you release this person? But that's not the case here. Rhodes currently has 
no fixed address. Uh, he's been um, apparently just sort of couch surfing for years. And this is something that I found remarkable. Hasn't filed an income tax return since 2007. So, you know, why does that matter? Well, you know, one of the things they want to know is, are you going to comply with the terms and conditions uh, that are set, uh, you know, if you're subject to pre, you know, <laughs> they let you go free, right? Well, somebody who won't even file their taxes, given all the penalties that apply there, uh, someone who's so ideologically driven, perhaps, that, that, you know, I mean, maybe he's just cheap, maybe he's just a cheat, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, one might assume it's, it's ideological, right? Like a lot of sovereign citizens, you know, uh, don't pay the, the taxes that they owe. He hasn't filed an income tax return since 2007. If you're the kind of person who's not filing your taxes, you might not be the kind of person who's going to uh, really comply with the terms and conditions that attach to your pretrial release. Court also mentioned that he has you know, stockpiles of weapons and an unknown number of family and paramilitary gang members who might be willing to offer him shelter nationwide. The court also accurately described evidence against Rhodes as very strong. And the evidence shows that Rhodes had prepared for much more violent contingencies than what actually happened on January 6th. And the court took note of that. And they found that his subsequent behavior, his communications with his co-defendants, and his instructions to them to tell them to destroy evidence, um, and the fact that he spent thousands of dollars stockpiling weapons after, before and after the insurrection, uh, all tended to point in one direction, that he's a danger to the community, a potential flight risk, of no fix addressed, and so he gets to stay somewhere that is, is going to be more secure. Um, and by the way, and one, one of the weirder details that emerges out of this is that, you know, I mean, again, the more you look into the rose, the worse it gets, right? I mean, this is a guy who uh, had dug Vietnam-style uh, Viet Cong uh, NVA, North Vietnamese Army, uh, regular style tunnels. You know, it had a tunnel complex in a rented backyard they dug out with a backhoe. Uh, and there's, you know, there's photographic evidence of this, right? So uh, Tasha Adams uh, post those as well. I don't know if the, you know, the court had them or if they even needed them. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is someone so paranoid that they're digging escape tunnels and have uh, cars hidden in the woods that they're going to you know, uh, use these tunnels to flee these cars. And then um, also Dakota Adams in, in a podcast that I'll, I'll, I'll definitely put a link to along with some other relevant information in his show notes, uh, you know, described uh, the fact that his father, uh, you know, allegedly told him that he uh, would, if, it, you know, if it ever came to it, flee to Mexico, right? And so that may explain why he was in Texas, right? To be closer to the Mexican border. So, you know, um you're not paying your taxes. You've got a stockpile of weapons. You have this nationwide network. I mean, really, if there's anyone who ever called for pre-trial detention, uh, it was Stuart Rhodes. So, um, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just, I, I, I don't know why it took them 24 to 48 hours. Um, you know, I, I, that would be something that, I mean, hopefully they, they would have been able to do quickly, but I'm glad the evidence was presented to the court. Uh, by the government um, and by uh, Tasha Adams uh, was persuasive. Now, I'd like to just do a little bit of a parenthetical uh, digression here. 
Uh, I was talking about board members of the Oath Keepers, right? So you've got that org chart, you've got the organizational structure, um, you've got uh, Rhodes on top, you've got the, the president, Kelly Sorrell, who may or may not be his girlfriend, you know, um, and then you, you've got uh, various directors. One, one of the board members is a man named Richard Mack, who is leader of the Constitutional Sheriff's Movement, which I believe uh, he began in 2011. Um, so this is another fringe movement that has this strange belief that elected sheriffs hold the top spot in American political life ahead of state and federal governments. Now, as a political scientist, I, this one just, you know, kind of blows my mind. So this is absolutely crazy. Um, this is not my first encounter with the, this constitutional sheriff's idea, but since this guy is a direct, you know, the founder of this quote movement, I, I thought I'd address it uh, for a moment here. Sheriffs are county level officials. Counties are created and subordinate to the states. States create counties. They're subordinate to the states. They're creatures of state law. So they're entirely sub subsidiary to the state. So the idea that, you know, a sheriff, a county level official, uh, is the top level, you know, official under our system of government is absolute nonsense. You might as well claim that the elected local dog catcher is the supreme authority and they wield an unlimited electoral mandate from the masses. The idea that supreme authority is granted to sheriffs by the Constitution is somewhat undercut by the fact that the actual text of the Constitution does not contain the word sheriff even once. So this is an idea that's so completely asinine that I, I feel guilty bringing it up and, you know, I feel like we're almost, we're all just a tiny little bit more stupid for even having to entertain the notion that sheriffs are the ultimate authority in our system of government. But that's, you know, the kind of people you have on the board of the Oath Keepers, people like Richard Mack, who thinks that, you know, uh, the sheriff is is basically a, a kind of locally elected pharaoh. Yeah, that's not how it works. So before I get to the actual uh, examination of uh, some of Stuart Rhodes' writings, um, I'd like to address relatively briefly the question of what the Oath Keepers who've been charged in the insurrection today are accused of doing. So according to the charging documents, on November 9th, the Oath Keepers met using GoToMeeting, to discuss their plans for January 6th. And during that meeting, Rhodes said, quote, it will be a bloody and desperate fight. We are going to have a fight. That can't be avoided. And uh, on that very same day, Jessica Watkins, who is uh, apparently self-styled as the commanding officer of the Ohio State Militia, sent text messages to recruit people to take part in the insurrection. So, um, I, I know I referenced uh, the podcast appearance by Dakota Adams earlier. That's entirely consistent uh, with the story that about, about the Oath Keepers that Dakota Adams told uh, in the interview with a competing podcast I'm nonetheless going to promote here uh, because uh, it's 90 minutes long. It's worth uh, every minute. It's a must listen. Dakota Adams describes his father as fundamentally lazy. And I always think, you know, I mean, not everything that people believe politically is a result of their character. Nonetheless, you know, um, it's kind of a, a touchstone here. I, I was struck by, uh, you know, some of the stories of basically sitting around all day in, in a funk, in a depression, farting on the couch in between bouts of, 
uh, attacking his children, like some uh, abusive father version of Inspector Clouseau. Um, and according to him, of course, he's, he's also a narcissist, which would explain why he's attracted to the, the Trumpist movement. Um, the, the idea is that Rose basically wants to bask in the adulation that comes from being the leader of the Oath Keepers, but he also lets volunteers do the actual work. So he just burns through these people, right? And so, you know, Ray Epps, for example, right, former leader of the Arizona chapter, uh, you know, apparently ended in, in 2011, um, you know, and if you look through the Oath Keepers, there, there are any number of these people, you know, um, board members, you know, people who put in a lot of work, who wound up uh, getting burned out, you know, while Rhodes is sitting around just going uh, to these various events, having standoffs with the federal government um, and, you know, digging holes in, in his backyard. So, um, you know, I mean... The fact that he's letting these other Oath Keepers do the work, I mean, for, from his standpoint, I mean, it works for operational security. It, it insulates Rhodes from charges that he actually led the planning of the Oath Keepers' assault on the electoral democracy in the United States. But at some level, um, Watkins and the others are leading the Oath Keepers precisely because uh, Rhodes himself is, is kind of just too lazy to put in the work. Uh, just, you know, kind of an, an interesting insight. I always like to say, you can fool everybody else, but your kids know who you are. And I, I think that's that's true in this case as well. So by March of 2021, authorities had gained access to the encrypted communications that the Oath Keepers had used in the run-up to the insur insurrection, which was an invitation-only signal chat called DCOP, colon, Jan 621. This evidence is now in the hands of the Department of Justice, and it's cited in the charging documents, included the lading, including the latest superseding indictment in the seditious conspiracy case, uh, which I'm going to quote from. The defendants conspired through a variety of manners and means, including organizing into teams that were prepared and willing to use force and transport firearms and ammunition into Washington, D.C., Recruiting members and affiliates to participate in the conspiracy, organizing trainings to teach and learn paramilitary combat tactics, bringing and contributing paramilitary gear, weapons, and supplies, including knives, batons, camouflage combat uniforms, tactical vests with plates, helmets, eye protection, and radio equipment, to the Capitol grounds. Breaching and attempting to take control of the Capitol grounds and building on January 6, 2021 in an effort to prevent, hinder, and delay the certification of the Electoral College vote. Using force against law enforcement officers while inside the Capitol on January 6, 2021, continuing to plot after January 6, 2021, to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power, and using websites, social media, text messaging, and encrypted messaging applications to, to communicate with co-conspirators and others, end quote. So that's a lot of different stuff, right? Um, but it all comprises this seditious conspiracy charge. The Oath Keepers uh, on January 6th organized themselves into two stacks, which I'm sure, you know, there's always an explainer on what a stack is. Basically, uh, just a bunch of live-action role players who put their hands on each other's shoulders and, and push forward in imitation of the military. There's one stack on the east side of the Capitol and one on the west. 
And they also had free rapid re reaction forces or QRF teams uh, that were organized by Caldwell and Vallejo, um, who again just got added in the new superseding conspiracy indictment. These quick reaction forces kept a variety of firearms, mainly at the Comfort Inn in Arlington, uh, in order to avoid violating DC gun laws until the last possible minute when the quick reaction forces were supposed to sweep in in a second wave, perhaps to occupy the capital itself after police were overwhelmed in an effort to forestall the certification of the Electoral College votes by Congress. And again, that relates to the recording uh, I played at the top of the show. The point of all this was to uh, obstruct the peaceful transfer of power by obstructing the official proceeding. Uh, and the means, you know, overall objective was, in effect, overturning the, the uh, transfer of power. So it is a complex case, and that is omitting a lot. You could just do, uh, you know, like, you know, I wouldn't want to listen to it, but like, you know, you could do a two-hour episode just comparing and contrasting the fifth superseding indictment uh, with the seditious conspiracy indictment. Um, but that's the gist of what these defendants are accused of doing. Now, as of this writing, there are two separate conspiracy cases, one scheduled for April and the other, the seditious conspiracy case that includes Rhodes himself with a trial date set for July. Now, at present, four Oath Keepers have accepted plea deals and are cooperating with the government efforts to prosecute the case. They are Jason Dolan, 44, of Wellington, Florida, Graydon Young, 54, of Inglewood, Florida, Caleb Berry, 20, of Tampa, Florida, and Mark Grodz, 54, of Mobile, Alabama. Now, this doesn't count John Schaefer, who's 53, and a guitarist for the heavy metal band Iced Earth, and a lifetime member of the Oath Keepers, who nonetheless appears not to have been involved in this broader conspiracy case. But, you know, bait is, is $1,000, who knows when, uh, but, you know, appears to have been a... Uh, I want to say a lone wolf because he's attacking the form of a mob, but, you know, um, basically an isolated actor with regard to uh, what the Oath Keepers did. So, by the way, I, I don't know if you noticed anything about the ages of the people I, I just listed, right? Um, Caleb Berry notwithstanding, this is not a youth movement. If you look at the 20 Oath Keepers who are listed in the fifth superseding indictment, the ages range from 19 to 70. Um... But most of the, the ages, are most of them, are, they're, they're in the 50s. Uh, the average age of them altogether is 46.75. So, way to go, Generation X. I have never been more ashamed of my own generation. The idea that you have all these middle-aged and even elderly people storming the Capitol as part of a paramilitary gang is just astounding. Um, you would think that at that age, they would have some maturity. A lick of sense. Have you never lost an election before? Really? Get over yourself. Uh, you know, apparently they would rather spend their golden years in federal prison than with their kids and grandkids. So, uh, you hate to see it. So, Elmer Rhodes, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, first claim to fame happened when he was published in the April 2008 issue of SWAT magazine, which I would basically describe as uh, something that provides gun porn for the modern amosexual. 
Uh, you know, I mean, just how many times do you need to re have reviews of Keltec, uh, you know, Moth or Mossberg shotgun thing? Yes, yes, they all fire things downrange. Thank you very much. You can use any of these to commit a, a wide variety of crimes. So, Rhodes writes this article called Just Following Orders, and it consists mainly of him ranting about things that he has completely made up out of thin air, these frightening paper tigers that he summoned, summoned from his feverish imagination. So later on, the Oath Keepers try to make a lot of noises about being nonpartisan, right? Rose tries to formulate, you know, explain this group away as being, you know, well, we're, we're nonpartisan, really. Um, but this piece shows a different intent. It, it's distinctly partisan, which I think is why, it, as a sort of a foundational document for the Oath Keepers, it's very important. Now, the villain of the SWAT article, Just Following Orders, is Hillary Clinton, uh, who Rhodes appears to imagine is going to win the Democratic nomination and the presidency. Remember, April 2008, North Carolina primary hasn't happened yet. Uh, that's what really shuts the door on Clinton and uh, winds up, you know, basically making it mathematically impossible for her to win the presidency, even though she, you know, winds up negotiating the position of Secretary of State for herself, which is complicated and an interesting story. So, Rose, of course, absolutely wrong about this. All across America, there's a vigorous primary race, and, you know, Clinton comes up second best, uh, you know, thanks to this massive grassroots movement, um, but, you know, it's just interesting to me, Rhodes begins all this with just being very wrong about this one fundamental, uh, kind of, you know, political prediction he makes. Um, anyway, he decides to give Clinton a cute nickname, Hitlery. Quote, imagine that Herr Hitlery, well, Herr Hitler, okay, so it's Mr. Hitler now, right? Um, Imagine that Herr Hitlery is sworn in as president in 2009. After a conveniently timed domestic terrorism incident, just a coincidence, of course, or yet another Prozac-induced mass shooting, she promptly crams the United States man United Nations-mandated Great Britain-style total ban on private possession of firearms through a compliant, democratically-controlled Congress. Dressed in her favorite Chairman Mao signature pantsuit, Hitlery signs the ban into law with the obligatory choir of sellout police chiefs as a backdrop, just like the good old days when Bill Clinton used the Oval Office. End quote. So there's a lot to unpack here about the future direction that the Oath Keepers are going to take just in that first paragraph. First off, Hitler's, uh, Hitlery, excuse me, uh, Clinton's described as a man, right? Not just any man, but as a, a German man, rather an Austrian man, a, a hare. Uh, and not just any German man, of course, Adolf Hitler himself, Austrian Adolf Hitler. Um, somehow, Hillary is the same as, as Hitler. Anyway, Rose uses domestic terrorism in scare quotes, which I think really foreshadows his own development into a domestic terrorist. He also gets basic geography wrong. You know, he refers to the United Kingdom, the UK, as, as Great Britain. Uh, he doesn't understand the difference between, you know, democratically and, and democratically, uh, which is, you know, a bit of a minor point. But, you know, for style reasons, we actually tend to not use 
that as as an adjective. Um, and of course, in addition to being Hitler, somehow she's also Chairman Mao because she wears pantsuits. So this is just basically knuckle-dragging red meat written for the kinds of middle-aged men who think that truck nuts are cool. Uh, and, you know, and everyone keeps mentioning the fact that uh, Rhodes went to, to Yale Law School. Uh, so, you know, you wouldn't expect... But this is exactly what these guys sound like, right? So, yeah. Anyway, I'll go on. Next paragraph, quote. But Hitlery, having a much larger pair, goes further. Proclaiming a national emergency... Actually, excuse me. That wasn't the next paragraph. I, I skipped ahead a little bit. Forgive me. But Hitlery, having a much larger pair, goes further. Proclaiming a national emergency and declaring the entire militia movement and anyone else Morris D's labels extremists to be, quote, enemy combatants. Using precedents established by Bush, Hitlery declares that such citizens are subject to secret military detention without indictment or jury trial, enhanced interrogation techniques, and trial before a military tribunal handpicked by the dominatrix and chief herself. Hitlery then orders police, National Guard troops, and active military to go house to house, to disarm the American people and black bag those on a list of known terrorists with orders to shoot all resistors, end quote. So Hillary Clinton is a man and she has really large testicles. I mean, this whole thing is just a really odd way of manifesting his own insecurities. Um, you know, do tell how much you are threatened by the size of Hillary Clinton's testicles. The term beta cuck had not yet been invented, but I mean, this is the most beta cuck thing I've ever seen. Um, I think the most toxic men really are the the most deeply insecure. So, I, I mean, I know I, I approach this from the attitude that I was going to, you know, analyze this in terms of political philosophy, but it's just so enmeshed with just glaring psychological problems around gender that it, that's almost impossible. This is just, it begins, right, you know, Oath Keeper's mood, uh, movement begins with a streed for toxic masculinity. The Oath Keepers may, at very point, various points, have made noises about being opposed to racism, but the misogyny seems to be even baked in at the very beginning. Rhodes is just enormously threatened by Hillary Clinton. Uh, He's a woman, but also somehow a German man and a Chinese man, who has big testicles, who is going to take his guns. I don't know if Rhodes has read Freud at all. I mean, is this intentional self-parody? Uh, this is someone who just, you know, needs therapy and should, you know, be kept as far from our politics as humanly possible. So, according to Rhodes, Hillary Clinton is a Nazi. Hillary Clinton, you know, wears pantsuits and she wants to cut off your penis. I mean, take your guns, whatever. Then cut off your penis. At any rate, Rhodes at this point creates an anecdote, which is so obviously fake that it unhappened things that actually happened. He tells a story about a college class on the subject of the Holocaust. And in that course, the professor, who also happens to be a proud socialist, because he's a professor after all, uh, he teaches Rhodes about the Old Nunspunitzai, which were a uniformed militarized police force in Nazi, Nazi Germany, which eventually became frontline troops 
and the Endlösung der Judenfrage, uh, the final solution of the German question, i.e. the Holocaust. So Rhodes took exception to the, the statement that I'm going to you know, give you in a minute. Uh, this professor apparently said this. Now, again, I think it was probably invented by Rhodes. Maybe some version of this happened. I don't know. Uh, but I, again, this guy just lies all over the time. All, you know, everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Uh, quote, no rational person could possibly say with any certainty that he would not do the same. I strongly disagreed, saying I was absolutely certain I would not obey orders to shoot women and children. I would instead shoot the officer giving me that order right through the head. All right, so, end quote. Um, you know, I, I've never met Stuart Rhodes. Um, I did do my dissertation on the Nazi jurist Carl Schmidt, and, uh, you know, have made some study of German history. Uh, I mean, from everything I know about Stuart Rhodes, his character, Nazism, the Holocaust, and the paramilitary gang movement, I can say with 100% certainty that he's either lying or is just fundamentally misunderstood his own character massively. He says he wouldn't take an order uh, as a member of the Oldenspolizei uh, to commit atrocities against Jews in Germany or Eastern Europe or anywhere else. Now, I, I think he's exactly the kind of person who would not only uh, do it, but he would be an enthusiastic and fanatical Nazi. So not, you know, not merely a, a I was just following orders kind of Nazi, but rather the kind of Nazi who volunteered for the Waffen-SS. This is someone who's claimed to be leading a movement of American patriots who wound up recreating the SA. And he has far more in common with Ernst Röhm than with George Washington. In fact, if you squint a little bit at Rome, he looks a lot like Rhodes, except he's got both of his eyes. Um, the Oath Keepers are basically the Sturmabteilung, the, the, the SA. Uh, they're the exact historical analog to the Nazi street-fighting paramilitary gangs that were fighting with Antifa back in the Weimar Republic. And what does Rhodes do on January 6th? He shows up in D.C., to lead his paramilitary gang to fight Antifa. I mean, you just make minor modifications to the uniforms, but otherwise, you don't really have to change that much. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it begins with a lot. Why, why is he obsessed with the question of whether or not he would uh, follow orders to commit atrocities in World War II during the Holocaust? Because he knows he would. He knows on some level that's why he's so fervent about denying. He, he, I think he knows, uh, and he's just lying about it here. So the book that Rhodes claims he was assigned, Ordinary Men, um, the basic argument that, that is made there applies to him and the Oath Keepers. The central claim in Ordinary Men, which was published in 1993, is basically that the men of the Old Nungspolizei were just ordinary men, uh, mainly middle-aged men who were rather unexceptional, and that the, you know, the Holocaust wasn't perpetrated by ravening sociopaths from outside of society, but rather, you know, again, just ordinary men. So the idea is that under the right conditions, perfectly ordinary people can commit atrocities. And that you or I can't really say ex-ante that we wouldn't either. Now, the author, uh, Professor Christopher Browning, who's a, 
professor uh, of youth history at UNC Chapel Hill, now emeritus, wasn't making a new point in 1993. The same basic point that he's making was made by Hannah Arendt uh, in uh, her work Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil and, and elsewhere, right? Although Professor Browning doesn't actually cite Arendt in Ordinary Men, which is interesting, uh, he's nonetheless written elsewhere that, of course, he was, I mean, everyone who does any reading in this area, very much familiar with Arendt's work, and in fact that his very first introduction to the Holocaust and the area of Holocaust studies was Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, in 1968, uh, just four years after she'd written it in 64. So it's not a stretch to see that Ordinary Men is basically uh, an extension of Hannah Arendt's basic project in Eichmann in Jerusalem. What Arendt was trying to do was polemical. She meant to go beyond mere description. Eichmann in Jerusalem winds up having a massive impact on generations of not only students of political philosophy, but also across other disciplines and certainly the general public as well. She's trying to demythologize Eichmann and, by extension, the rest of the Nazi leadership. Other folks have tried to pick apart what she was doing, but that's often an exercise in missing the point, which is essential to understanding the Holocaust and many of the other atrocities throughout human history. I'm sympathetic to some of the you know, individual claims about, you know, the idea that, uh, well, the ordinariness of Eichmann has been overstated. Um, you know, I mean, he's undoubtedly a twisted and sick person, but nonetheless, the figure of Eichmann Arendt creates is still useful. It's still important. This idea that, a, you know, the banality of evil, right? Uh, a perfectly ordinary person right, under these circumstances winds up uh, perpetrating uh, unthinkable atrocities. Rhodes apparently can't understand any of this. Now, maybe he's clever, but I've seen scant evidence of that. In his narcissism, he takes the basic point in ordinary men as a kind of personal insult. Quote, the shock professor declared that I had the same sort of resolute certainty as the Nazis, and of such certainty was dangerous. A delicate metrosexual male student, apparently seeking approval, proclaimed that he could not say that he would refuse to follow the orders. I turned to him in disbelief, asking, You can't say for sure you wouldn't shoot old women and little kids? His answer, I'd rather live a live coward than die a dead hero. Sorry, I actually said, I'd rather be a live coward than a dead hero. He, spoiler, he didn't say this. Again, this didn't happen. I kid you not. And the rest of the class sat silent, none taking my side. At that moment, I understood what H.L. Mencken meant when he said, every normal man must be tempted at times to go to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin to slit throats. Only in the sheltered ivory towers of academia is such craven cowardice considered a virtue and resolve considered a vice. End quote. At this point, I, I'm rather curious as to whether Rhodes actually did the assigned reading, because he's apparently surprised by all of this in class and reacts as though it's the first time he's heard any of it. More to the point, he seems to think that the problem is that the men who committed atrocities during the Holocaust 
simply weren't manly enough, not tough enough to resist the entire edifice of extermination created by the Nazi state. Spoiler alert, the problem with Nazism isn't that individual Nazis weren't tough. In fact, many of them adopted something very similar to the kind of warrior ethos Rhodes himself has advocated for over a decade now. It's telling that he actually takes this as a narcissistic injury, and it makes him want to slit throats and become a pirate, which is in itself a kind of foreshadowing after he shoots out his eye. The urge to slit throats that he, you know, he feels at this moment, or claims to have felt at that moment, is exactly the kind of impulse that Nazism exploited. I feel as though uh, we could resolve a lot of problems here if Rhodes had actually done the assigned reading, assuming this episode even happened in the first instance. The sort of impulse, uh, what the Greeks would have called thumos, uh, along with the intellectual laziness exhibited by Rhodes, is what makes his way of thinking possible. Of course the old Nonspolizei, the Waffen-SS, and the various other perpetrators didn't simply commit atrocities on the basis of simple orders. These atrocities were made possible by an ideology that cast Germans as victims, and so justified the Holocaust. It's not as if Nazism was characterized by some lack of people taking oaths, right? I mean, that's the problem. His, his solution? We all need to honor our oath. The Nazis had oaths. So from 1933 until the end of the Third Reich, every member of the German military and civil service had to take an oath to the Fatherland and also to Adolf Hitler personally. So, you know, again, uh, you've got, you know, oaths isn't the problem. And, it, you know, fascists are fond of oaths, actually. A big part of what Rhodes is doing is that he's defining a crime, the seizure of weapons by the state, casting his audience as potential victims, and calling on them to rally around his banner to defend themselves. Uh, preemptively, in this instance. He's asking his audience to get angry about a crime he just made up out of whole cloth. Here's a continuation of the article uh, published in SWAT. Quote, just as, you, just as you have honed your mental trigger in advance and trained yourself to respond effectively against physical threats, you must prepare yourself in advance to take a stand against unconstitutional and thus illegal or immoral orders and so-called laws. You must play a what-if game with those questions as well, decide how you will react and visualize yourself doing it, just like you do when preparing for future combat. Just as I know beyond a doubt that I would lay down my life in defense of my wife and children, I know I would gladly give what is left of my life to ensure that they live in a free country. And no doubt you feel the same about your kids. All right, so I mean, firstly, a trigger isn't something you would ordinarily hone. So, you know, um, 
Rhodes' whole honing his trigger all the time. He's, he's mixed up metaphors, which may seem to, to be a pedantic point, but these are the kinds of people who get upset if you call a magazine a clip or round a bullet, right? A knife, an edge weapon, is something that you would hoon. You're not hooning your trigger. At any rate, it's only here that we get to the real kernel of the Oath Keeper's idea, which is simply that the argument there for an affirmative duty to oppose orders and laws that one sees as unconstitutional or unjust. But what he does is take this idea and use it as the premise for a political movement. And not inconsequentially, uh, membership dues, right? Payable to him. So, you know, not a new idea. I mean, Nuremberg trials happened, right? So, uh, you know, this is a well-established principle, but he just sort of steals it and uses it to found this organization that ultimately, you know, begins as a form of grift for him, but winds up with him uh, leading Oath Keepers in the January 6th insurrection. Now, the rhetorical technique that he uses throughout is what various philosophers, uh, not just in, in uh, political philosophy, but philosophy more generally, call othering. He's defined an other, in this instance, Hillary Clinton, uh, socialists, intellectuals, metrosexual men, women who wear, pa wear pantsuits. Um, they are the other, and he's invited his audience to see them as an enemy. Now, the, this turn is essentially fascist. One of the fundamental precepts of politics is that the state has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. That's Weber's definition. What Rhodes does here is to define an internal enemy, describe to his audience, uh, describe them as victims of that enemy, and effectively deputize them to defend themselves against that enemy. Now, you'll notice that he doesn't just rely on any actual quotes from Clinton to do this, uh, or even anything from the assigned reading. Um, you know, the groundwork that for his audience in SWAT magazine has already been done. They're already ready to just hear people uh, defined as enemies, uh, thanks to 20 years of talk radio and uh, accelerating asymmetric polarization, which, again, we saw where that led on January 6th. And for Rose's purposes, it doesn't even actually matter what Hillary Clinton says or does. It's sufficient that she wears a pantsuit and is a Democrat. Moreover, it doesn't actually even have to be Hillary Clinton. In a short preamble to the article, Rhodes uh, makes this, you know, kind of a, a codicil. He affixes this to the essay before he posted it to his Oath Keepers blog. It was originally published in SWAT magazine, later on included on the Oath Keepers blog. And he wrote something that I take is a rather astounding and honest confession. Quote, because I wrote this article back in January of 2008, I didn't know who would win the nominations for either party, much less who would be president. So I used the hypothetical of, of Hillary Clinton as president, which I think it is safe to assume that the, was the average SWAT reader's nightmare back then. When you read it, just replace Hitler with Obama, Holder, and Rahm Emanuel, who, can, who you can picture wearing the Chairman Mao's signature pantsuit, if you like. You can see that I was thinking of a, a great deal about the meaning of our oath back then, well over a year ago, while I worked as a volunteer for the Ron Paul campaign in Nevada. That's about the time I first got the idea to start Oath Keepers. So there you go. 
That is actually remarkably honest. Probably the most honest thing he's actually written here. It's, he wrote it, you know, a year later. Uh, it doesn't matter to him who the Democratic nominee would have been or what their actual policies would have been. The exact identity of the domestic enemy is completely immaterial. Although you should note that the alternatives to Clinton that he lists here are Obama, Holder, and Emmanuel, two black men and a Jew. So any Democrat, any generic Democrat, is the domestic enemy to be opposed, uh, potentially with violence, in the service of protecting the rights of real Americans from crimes that his audience know and assume that these Democrats want to commit. And even though he, the oath that he likes to re invoke refers to all enemies, foreign and domestic, you will note that he doesn't actually even mention any potential foreign enemies in this context. He refers back to World War II, but not to any potential rivals to the U.S. at that current time. It's all about domestic enemies. Franz Neumann, uh, the Frankfurt School political scientist, describes this emphasis on the need for enemies as central to fascism. And in fact, it's the fifth element of the fifth essential elements of fascism. He describes his monumental 1944 analysis of fascism, Behemoth. So while Rhodes begins his journey with an example taken from the history of fascism, if you actually examine his thought, he basically has just two ideas. That people shouldn't obey unlawful orders, and more importantly, there exists an internal political enemy against whom use of force is authorized in the name of liberty. And this authorization of the use of force is authorized by him, founder of the Oath Keepers, a man who, in his own imaginings, uh, is as great as George Washington. Um, and, you know, and it's up to you, right? You know, if you don't like your neighbor, you don't like the way they vote, you don't like the outcome of the elections, uh, you know, I, it's right there. January 6th is fully present here in the article that winds up ultimately beginning the Oath Keepers. So when Oath, uh, the Oath Keepers begin in uh, 2009, Rhodes founds them, he has fleshed out this basic idea up into a kind of a credo. And he's kept it simple. His audience are simple men, and so he needs to have a uh, very simple list of things in which they believe. And in this case, it takes a list of 10 orders that Oath Keepers will not obey. Full membership, of course, in the Oath Keepers is available to current and former military, along with police and firefighters. But associate membership is open to anyone. Again, I think, you know, for him, the important thing is, is that membership fee, right? Yeah, he just wants your money. Um, and so as part of the, the incentive for this, he's giving them uh, the, this list of things that people who have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution uh, are going to, to follow. Now... Uh, interestingly, full membership, you know, does, isn't even actually necessarily restricted to people uh, who take this oath. It's noted on the Oath Keepers website that some first responders don't actually take an oath to uphold the Constitution against uh, all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, they're included in full membership, uh, despite the fact that they, you know, have not taken that oath. So it's just completely arbitrary, right? Um, and functionally, associate membership is in fact, totally the same anyway, but it does make them feel special. Now, I, I've gone through, I've edited, he's got a little bit of a little bit of an explainer after each of these. You don't, we don't, that's unnecessary here. I'll just go through the list of 10 orders that they will not obey. One, 
We will not, and, and that's in all caps, right? Okay, feature of all great writing, all caps. We will not obey any order to disarm the American people, too. We will not obey any order to conduct warrantless searches of the American people, their homes, vehicles, papers, or effects, such as warrantless house-to-house -house searches for weapons or persons. Three, we will not obey any order to detain American citizens as unlawful enemy combatants or to subject them by trial by military tribunal. Four, we will not obey orders to impose martial law or a state of emergency on a state or to enter with force into a state without the express consent and invitation of that state's legislature and governor. Fifth, we will not obey orders to invade and subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty and declares the national government to be in violation of the compact by which that state entered the Union. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Confederacy is really happy to hear that one. Six, we will not obey any order to blockade American cities, just turning, thus turning them into giant concentration camps. Seven, we will not obey any order to force American citizens into any form of detention camps under any pretext. Eight, we will not obey orders to assist or support the use of any foreign troops on U.S. soil against the American people to keep the peace or to maintain control during any emergency or under any other pretext. We will consider the use, such use of foreign troops against our people to be an invasion and an act of war. Nine, we will not obey any orders to confiscate the property of the American people, including food and other essential supplies, under any emergency pretext whatsoever. Finally, 10, we will not obey any orders which infringe on the right of the people to free speech, to peaceably assemble, and to petition their government for a redress of grievances. So those are the orders they won't obey. Note, note that voting isn't among them, by the way. Uh, voting, we will not obey an order to interfere in an election. He's, he's apparently okay with that. Um, and you'll notice he's cleaned up his act a little bit. Gone are the references of Hillary Clinton as Hitler. Uh, in fact, if you squint a little bit, you could imagine it almost to be nonpartisan and neutral. Uh, but again, I direct your attention to the fifth item. It's just straight up uh, neo-Confederate line that would make uh, Jefferson Davis quite happy. It asserts a positive right of secession, uh, a matter that was actually decided by force of arms, if he was at all familiar uh, with our American history or military history. You know, we settled that one. It was a civil war. Um, you know what? You, you don't want to fight that. You, we know what side you're on, okay, Stuart? Clearly, you're, this is a neo-Confederate ideology is right there present in these uh, 10 orders that you will not obey. Uh, one I'm surprised he doesn't include is uh, the Third Amendment of the Constitution, right? The right to be free from having troops quartered in your house. That bothered the, the Founding Fathers quite a bit. They just leaves that one out. And decides to invent some other stuff that is basically just, um, you know, internet conspiracy nonsense, right? There's just a lot of stuff here that, that's made up, almost as if he needed to add a few items just to get the list to 10. Um, I mean, they're not going to blockade cities, right? They're, they're not going to force American citizens into detention camps. They're not going to support the use of foreign troops to maintain control in the United States. This is just pure black helicopter stuff. Um, you know, there's no one was saying that was going to happen other than some uh, fringe kooks somewhere. I mean, you know, good. I'm 
you know what? I, I'm not going to support uh, aliens coming down and, and invading Nevada. You know, I mean, it's, it's absurd. Um, what he has done is he's kept it simple. And you'll notice, I, I think here, echoes of Mike Vanderbilt, uh, that I covered him in uh, the Three Percenters episode. You see, at this point, the, the uh, paramilitary movement, what others call the militia movement, is they're going through, the, uh, you know, they have a bit of an identity problem, right? And so Vanderbilt and Rhodes are trying to purge the movement of white supremacy, uh, or at least the public per perception of white supremacy, right? I mean, he's, he's saying right in there that he thinks the Civil War was basically fine. Um, you know, anti-racism, interestingly, isn't part of his first principles, right? He's got nothing in there saying, oh, and, and, and by the way, uh, we will not enforce, you know, laws against racial segregation. I mean, again, if you're going to go back to the Civil War, why not at least learn the, the right lessons? Uh, nonetheless, you know, again, um, I think this is more apparent than real. I think the, the uh, extreme... Uh, intent of othering people and identifying an other uh, is pretty present in, in the first essay. And even though he's purged it here, nonetheless, it doesn't make it his listen to the top 10 orders that they're not going to obey. And in fact, you know, the, that list of orders includes basically something that would have been endorsed by Jefferson Davis. Now, he does include an anti-racist uh, bit in the bylaws. Uh, which states, quote, no person who advocates or has been or is a member or associated with any organization, formal or informal, that advocates discrimination, violence, or hatred toward any person based upon their race, nationality, creed, or color shall be entitled to be a member or an associate member. Now, I think people can disagree about this, but to my mind, what both Vanderbilt and Rhodes are doing is a kind of a whitewash, if you'll pardon the expression. Racism in the movement creates for them a huge public relations problem. And so this is how they handle it. They say, well, we're not racist. You know, we're hyper ideological, you know, but, but we're not racist, right? And so, you know, you're not allowed to be a Klan member and join, but you know, Klan ideology uh, isn't prohibited itself. So the racism has to be sato voce. Now, one of the main uh, organized activities of the Oath Keepers has been to just show up at these various events in their uniforms, which of course, you know, again, not official in any way. They just, uh, and they, they claim that they're offering security, right? So, you know, there's a whole list of these. That the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014, also Ferguson in 2014, the Sugar Pine Mine standoff in 2015, Chrissy Field in 2017, Stoneman Douglas High in 2018, etc. and so forth. So, um, and it's clear they, they say they're you know they're coming to they they are functioning as security. They're uh, coming to keep the peace, but that's not what they're doing, right? They're coming to intimidate certain sex, sets of actors and embolden others. Uh, when they showed up at Ferguson, they were uh, in fact you know denounced by the police who saw them as a hindrance. And, you know, their actual behavior was to go up on the rooftops. Uh, again, these weren't people from the local community. These are people coming into that community with guns. Basically, a, a neo-Confederate slave patrol. So the Oath Keeper's ideology depends upon the existence of a domestic enemy, right? They other other people 
or whether, you know, and they're defining them here in ideological terms rather than racist terms. Well, guess what? Uh, if, you know, a certain percentage of uh, people of color wind up voting for a party you don't like, uh, you wind up disenfranchising them anyway, right? When you try to overturn the, the results of the election. And so over time, uh, whether you're Mike Vanderbilt or Steve Rhodes, if you're going to go around the country doing live action role plays, security in uh, this space, you're going to find yourself drifting in further and further from the right. And you're going to find yourself on the same side as actual Nazis who are inhabiting this space. So that's what I think really happened with Rhodes and how he got caught up in the movement that he creates and the cult of personality that he creates himself. And ironically, it's a complete vindication of the kind of description of the Ordnungspolizei that Professor Browning offers in Ordinary Men, right? He creates an ideology that awards a victim status to a category of people who probably don't deserve it, for one thing, right? Uh, you know, and again, is a, a kind of a, a preemptive victim status. And it's entirely up to them to decide when they're a victim. And it's entirely up to them to decide who the domestic enemy is. And it's entirely up to them to decide what measures they're going to take. Whether they're going to go to Ferguson to, quote, protect property, or whether they're going to go to the Bundy Ranch to uh, try to, in effect, allow uh, the Bundys to confiscate federal government land for private use. So I'll explore this idea of othering and how, uh, in essence, that becomes more and more important an activity uh, for the Oath Keepers as time goes on. Again, I'm going to rely more and more on the, the blog posts um, that, you know, are put up by Rhodes and others uh, and then on analysis of the crimes that they committed on January 6th, although, again, I or allegedly committed on January 6th and the run-up to January 6th, although we've had four of them confess at this point. So uh, when speaking generically about it, I don't think I need to feel that uh, I need to use the word allegedly anymore. Uh, the Oath Keepers committed crimes on January 6th, and there will be two trials, one in April and one in July, that are going to determine the outcome. And we may see more seditious conspiracy charges emerge uh, you know, with other organizations and, and possibly even as other or Oath Keepers are added to these cases. So next time, I will obviously, again, once again, keep up with current events. Uh, we'll cover those and then um, complete the this short two-episode uh, series on the Oath Keepers, looking at uh, their behavior, their conduct, their rationalizations, their consistent behavior of defining themselves as victims, opposed to uh, some domestic enemy, um, and again, you know, thereby redefining politics, redefining the political, uh, orienting themselves uh, basically toward fellow Americans and seeing them as an enemy to be opposed uh, with armed force, ultimately leading up to, of course, their activities on January 6th. Until then, uh, you can follow the show on Twitter, uh, Scott Kuhn or uh, Cap Insurrup. Um, and uh, stay, be careful, stay healthy, and uh, have a lovely week.